Well, I do greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, as well as bring greetings from the Reformed Baptist Church in Toledo. I would also like to commend to you, I've had in the last week, couple weeks, been able to speak to your, your deacon on a number of occasions. It, it tells me something about this church when I consider the deacon that you've chosen to serve you, the very hands of God the deacon brings to the people of God. So it's been a, a great joy to get to know him, and through him I trust something of you as well. Well, if you would once again have your Bibles open to our reading this morning, Psalm 44, Psalm 44, a maskel of the sons of Korah. We're not entirely sure what a maskel is to be understood as, is a, some sort of music, or is it a, to, to let us know that we're being taught something here? We're not really sure. We're going to consider this with God's help this morning. Our Protestant, our Reformed faith, teaches us that there are two competing theologies competing for the hearts and the minds of God's people. The two theologies are the theology of glory, the other is the theology of the cross. Now the first, the theology of glory, assumes that man is able to accomplish much by his strength, while the other knows that God, in fact, works through weakness. Speaking about this very thing, Lutheran theologian Vieth says, a theologian of glory expects total success, finding all the answers, winning all the battles, and living happily ever after. A theology of glory is all about my strength, my power, my work, says Vieth. This theologian of glory expects his church to be perfect and always growing. If a theologian of glory gets sick, He expects God to always heal him. If not, he's often utterly confused, questioning the sufficiency of his faith and sometimes questioning the very existence of God himself. So you see, a a theologian of glory expects glory for man because of man's strength and capacities. This morning, what I hope to once again reassure all of you people of God that the only way to know God both savingly and safely is in the place where the Spirit of God has brought all the elect of God. And the Spirit of God has brought you, in fact, to the dismay, the sorrow, all the blood, the gore, the darkness, brokenness, The nails, the spit, the beating. The Spirit of God has brought you to the dying of the Father's Son on Calvary's cross. Contemporary theologian, Carl Truman, historical theologian, 
speaking of this very thing, that was recovered in the, when you think of yourself as being Protestant or Reformed, you should very much think about these competing theologies and their theologians, one of glory that looks at man in his strength and his capacity and the theology of the cross. Carl Truman, speaking of this, says the theologians of the cross are those who build their theology in the light of God's own revelation of himself in Christ hanging on the cross. God triumphs over sin and evil by allowing sin and evil to triumph triumph over Christ. Seemingly, apparently, triumphing. His real strength is demonstrated, Truman says, through apparent weakness. Christian theology, to be worthy of the name, to be truly Christian theology, must be done, even as we sang, in the shadow of the cross. The Reformation, of which this church is very much a part of, understood the theologia crucis, the theologian of the cross, as not only God's way in our justification, where he declares us to be righteous because of the imputed, the credited righteousness of Christ, they not only consider the theology of the cross in our justification, but also the way of God in our sanctification. The cross was the path of Christ, and the cross is now, child of God, your path. The cross is not something simply that we visit at the beginning of the Christian journey, and then occasionally visit it when our conscience is troubled. No, it is the way that God still reveals himself in his sanctifying salvation. And so this morning, with God's help, and for those who have ears to hear, with God's help, we'll gain a better grasp of God and his love for his people and how we are to even now see him at work in our lives. So see God at work, Christian, in your life. Again, there's still this competition, both in Christian publishing and in your own heart. The the, the struggle between the theology of glory, my best life now, and the theology of the cross. And this psalm will help us to get a, a, a good grip and a handle on the theology of the cross. I'm not going to go through all this that's already been wonderfully read this morning. Let me give you the outline of what's here. There's largely three sections. In the first eight verses, there's something of a glorious past. Now, there's two parts of this. There's a distant past, verses 1 through 3, and then verses 4 through 8, a more recent past. Or it might be Verses 4 through 8 is a reflection of the more distant past, how they would have spoken to God during that most glorious time. But then beginning at verse 9, 
going from a glorious past, we see a gloomy present. This too is divided into two sections, verses 9 through 16, our shepherd has sold us, verses 17 through 22, but we have remained faithful. The last section is a future hope in God. So there's a glorious past, a gloomy present, and a future hope in God. Before we go any further, let's once again pause and ask God for his help. Oh, gracious God in heaven, I thank you for these people that are here this morning, that I can be with them, rejoicing in our common salvation that you've brought about, that was planned from eternity and realized in our own history. And we would ask, gracious Father, that as we come to this psalm, that once again we would see your glory, not ours, and that glory that's in the crucified Christ. Help us to understand this the Holy Scripture, we thank you, blessed Spirit, that you've not only inspired the text, but you have preserved it all the way down to our English translations. So we ask, blessed Holy Spirit, that you would help us to understand this, your holy word. And we ask this in the name of the blessed Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, looking there again at verses 1 through 3, part of the glorious past, we see a memory of divine help and blessings, a memory that was handed down from the fathers. Verse 1, we've heard with our ears, our fathers have told us. So they're reflecting upon a time when the fathers had gathered the children and, and had explained to them what God had done in their days. And this remembering of the past is recalling that God in his majestic sovereignty had provided for his people. So there, verse 2, we heard about you from our fathers, verse 1, verse 2, you with your own hand drove out the nations. Now we really don't know the context of Psalm 44, we don't know the historical situation, but here they're reflecting upon the time when God drove the people out of the, the land of promise. And how, verse 2, God had planted his people. Verse 3, the fathers knew and recognized, verse 3, that their own sword did not, they did not possess the land. And then we get these three devices that God used. Look at verse 3. Your right hand, your arm, and the light of your presence. And now why is this? Did the Jewish people gain the land because they were better or stronger or smarter? No, look at the very end of verse 3. For the New American Standard has, for you favored them. I think the ESV has, you delighted in them. Why did all this happen? God's arm, his presence, driving them out of the land simply because of God favored them. This is all of our heart's desire to know and to enjoy and to feel deep in our soul that God has favored us. That he's delighted in us. That he has shown us grace. That's the only reason we're given in this whole psalm of this glorious past The end of verse 3, God's favor for his people. 
Now, beginning in verse 4, still reflecting on a glorious past, we see not the distant past, but perhaps a more recent past, where God, verse 4, is called their king, because they know from experience that there is no one other to be trusted but God. So you you see there, verse 6, for I will not trust in my bow. This is probably the king representing the people. For I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. But you have saved us from our adversaries. And you've put to shame those who hated us. So there's a contrast here already. Shame, verse 7, and favor, verse 3. And so verse 8, in God... Not in ourselves, in God, we have boasted, not, not just in the morning or before bedtime, in God we have boasted all the day long. And we will give thanks to your name. I'm not sure how the ESV has it. But we will give thanks to your name forever. All the way down to 2023. Now, you see there in your Bibles, the ESV, I'm sure, has at the end of verse 8, there's the Selah. Once again, we're not really entirely sure what that means. How that was, was, was that a, a, some sort of notation to the musician to change the, the tempo? We, we really don't know. Some have suggested, and the way I choose to use this, is this is a call for us to just pause and reflect about what we read. So, in doing that, let me ask you, if you had just sat down and you read your Bibles, you read verses 1 through 8, maybe at family worship, maybe over your morning coffee, and you just read verses 1 through 8, what title would you have given this psalm? The Overcomer's Psalm. The Song of Victory. A Mighty Warrior is Our God. The triumph of the believer. Good days from our good God. I like songs like that. I want to sing songs like that. But now look, verse 9, the second part of this psalm. Going from the glorious past to the gloomy present. Yet you've rejected us and brought to us dishonor. So even now, as we move from the past to the present, there's a a focus that remains intensely upon God. There was in the first section. And now, if you just let your eyes drift down from verse 9, how often God is referred to in the pronoun you, yet you have rejected us. Six times, verse 10, you caused us to turn back. Verse 11, you gave us a sheep to be eaten. Verse 12, you sell your people cheaply. You've not profited by their sale. 
You make us, verse 13, a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. God has turned them into a riddle, to a joke, to a byword. You know how bywords work? When I was a, was a child, we'd talk about someone who was a dunce. You dunce. That comes from a medieval scholar, Scotus, dunce Scotus. And when he says somebody was a dunce, it was because they're kind of thick-headed. In the New Testament, we get this. Paul talks about how Paul left Titus there at Crete, and then later he talks about Cretans are liars and sluggards. So the very name Cretan became a, a byword. Here he's saying we became a laughingstock, a, a song of derision. Ho, ho, the Hebrews got to go. Ho, ho, we brought the Hebrews low. Notice where they trace it back to. They don't just simply look at their enemy and say they were stronger than us. Again, six times, you, 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 you have done this. Verse 15 and 16, look how personal this, this, this becomes, how personal for the psalmist all day long. My dishonor is before me and my humiliation has overwhelmed me. like engulfed by a, a tidal wave, a storm that has swept over him personally. Verse 16, because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the presence of the enemy and of the avenger. He's, he's saying, look, God, you have brought the very presence of the enemy to me. It's all very personal. One writer Ask the question, why this present gloom? He offers three different reasons. Perhaps God was temporarily looking the other way, and the people's enemies used that moment. Secondly, he suggests perhaps the defeat is not as bad as it appears, and the people are just exaggerating. I exaggerate. This headache is going to kill me. Thirdly, he suggests, perhaps the people are at fault, and God has sent defeat as a judgment on their unfaithfulness. Well, what do we make of those three? Well, the first reason that God was distracted and while he wasn't looking, he turned back and goes, oh, look, all these terrible things happen. That's a pagan notion of God. Every child that's catechized knows that God knows all things. God sees all things. God was not distracted. The second is, maybe, maybe they're just exaggerating. That's not true either. If you look at verse 11, you give us as sheep to be eaten and to scatter us among the nations. So there's a metaphor. It's like we're food, but in a reality of experience, we're now being driven out of the land. Hardly an exaggeration. Verse 19. Yet you have crushed us in the place of jackals, uh, remote and far away. We've been crushed and cover us with the shadow of death. You understand that language, right? It's as though they're already on the ground and now the shadow of a large foreboding presence falls upon them. 
And behind the shadow is the gruesome reality of death itself. No, it's hardly an exaggeration. What about the last? They're at fault. They have lacked faithfulness. Well, that's answered in the next section, beginning at verse 17. The, the first part of the second section, we see the suffering of the innocents. Now we're going to hear about the innocence of the suffering. All this has come upon us, verse 17, but we have not forgotten you, nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. So there are four different ways that God's inspired penmen recounting the history of God's people assert their faithfulness, assert that they did not deserve this. So four times in verses 17 through 22, we we encounter the word not. We've not forgotten you, verse 17. Verses 17 and 18, rather. We have not dealt falsely with your covenant. In other words, God had made a covenant with God's people. You shall worship me in these ways. You shall keep my word. You shall be faithful to me. So they're saying we've kept your word. We've kept your ordinances. Verse 18, our heart has not turned back. And our steps have not deviated from your ways. We've we've been set on the narrow path of righteousness, one foot in front of the other. We've not gone to the left. We've not gone to the right. They're asserting that that in fact, they have been faithful. So what's going on? Verse 22, but for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to the slaughter. They know God, and they know that they live in full view of God. Verse 20, if we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, now we're not really sure that the extending of the hands to God could either have been the posture of prayer, have we prayed to another God, or it, it could not necessarily mean only in prayer, but in promise, so that you would, be, you would come into a court in a situation, even as we do now, we raise our hand and we say, I swear to God. And they're saying we, either way, in our prayers, our promises, there was no strange God, verse 21. If we had done that, this is what they know, verse 21. Would not God find this out? It's a rhetorical question. Of course. Why? For he knows the secrets of the heart. If he knows the secrets of the heart, he knows the, the, the fashion of the hand. So they're reviewing their own innocence and they're saying these things have come upon us. We don't deserve it. And in fact, before God, we can say to you, you know our hearts, you know our hands. This is not because they have been unfaithful. Here, as they stand before God in this psalm, there's no confession of sin or repentance of unfaithfulness because this psalm is the psalm of the suffering. It is a lament. Well, just to finish up the exposition then, there, verse 23 through 26. 
as if we have to use certain languages to talk about how the Bible talks about God in ways that are not really the way he is in his perfections, his attributes. We call them anthropomorphisms, which just means that sometimes God in his greatness appears like a man. So here he appears like he's a man sleeping. The psalmists do this often. Verse 23, arouse yourself. Why do you sleep? Awake. Do not reject us. You have now. Their prayers do not reject us forever. Oh, why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? And then verses 25 and 26, we we have the ultimate appeal. Verse 25, they consider themselves as good as dead. The shadow of death, death has come upon them. And so they say, for our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. We're as good as dead. And yet we hope in you. So they're hoping in the resurrection. So verse 26, they cry out to God, rise up. Be our help and redeem us for the sake of Now, here's where all of our English translations try desperately to capture the fullness of the Hebrew word here. The New Record Standard has loving kindness. Redeem us for the sake of your love, your kindness, your mercy, your grace. Redeem us because you love us. So that's just a quick... Exposition. My guess, any one of you, if you'd spent enough time with the psalm, you would have come up with the same divisions. You would have recognized that this psalm presents to us something that's very unexpected. Now, is there a lesson for us here today? Well, your New Testaments repeatedly says what we find in Romans, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Really, David? There's hope in this? As long as your hope is not set upon this world, the New Testament says to us that we are to set our hope completely upon the grace that will be ours when Jesus Christ returns. Oh, we can have lesser hopes, but understand they're just that, lesser hopes. So what is it that's here? Psalm 102 also says, let what has been written be written for generations yet to come. What screams to us from this passage is the question, why do the righteous, why do the innocent suffer? Look at verse 24. It's right there. Very first word. Why do you hide your face? Why? Verse 23. Do you sleep? The the book of Job wonderfully corresponds to this. He himself asked to God, Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? In the very real experience of his own life, losing children, losing wealth, losing health, he cries out the same cry, why? Lamentations. Jeremiah writing on behalf of the people of God, 
Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forget, for, forsake us for so long? In chapter 5, why do, the, why do the righteous suffer? Verse 22, Here, here's the closest we get to an answer. But for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. The nations, when they looked at the very people of God, they considered them little more than livestock to be used. He says that you sold us cheaply. You didn't even make a, a profit off of our sale. Why do the righteous suffer? Those of you who know your Bible well enough to know that that same question was asked at the very cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our Bibles don't give us any indication, but you know, I, I've always wondered, where, how, how, how did he cry that out? Was it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? Or is it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sinless son of God who had done no wrong. There was no harm in his hands, in his mouth. His life was given over to the service and the good of others. Trace out the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Didn't he heal all of our diseases? And calm the storm? Didn't he correct our ignorance there in the Sermon on the Mount? People would bring to him those who were tormented and tortured in their soul, possessed and controlled by devils. Uh, a terrible sickness would accompany that. And with just the word, he would... By the way, just always be clear about this. Jesus did not perform exorcisms. There was no special ritual. He didn't sprinkle salt. He just simply said a word. Get out. We see him, his whole life is given over, given over. He said, I did not come to be served. If any should be able to demand to be served, it was our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, but I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give. My life is a ransom. So this psalm is actually, when rightly understood, is forecasting the suffering of the righteous one. We're told at the beginning of Job, we know what's going on. Job doesn't know what we know. When we're reading Job, that the Job begins with God saying to Satan, have you considered my son, my servant, Job, that he is righteous? And of course, Job's counselors come along, and they have a certain kind of logic that goes like this. The wicked suffer, Job suffers, therefore, Job is wicked. Isaiah 53, you know the text, speaking of Jesus, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And so Jesus cries out at the cross, 
Why, God, am I forsaken? Where are you, God? Where are you? Why? Is this because somehow Jesus had a lapse of memory? No, but in his, his very human nature, body and soul, suffering as he is, the abandonment of God and the sorrow, he can't help but reflect what we have here in this text. Why do you sleep? Why do you hide your face? And so we see there in the cross the abandonment of the righteous one. And yet, every believer here knows that the cross, at the same time, God is revealed as wise and gracious. Right? You want to know the wisdom of God, the love of God, the greatness of God? Where do you go? Oh, yeah, creation shows us all kinds of wonderful things about God's wisdom and his power. But if you want to know the greatness of God's wisdom and his power, you go to the cross. It's, it's there in the cross that the strange paradox of our religion a wonderful paradox of our faith that death brings life. Weakness is strength. Greatness is achieved in service. God's kingdom belongs to the poor. The gentle shall inherit all. The cross and the sorrow and all that was attached to it is the wisdom and the power of God. You remember how Paul in our New Testament says the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Those who hear the theology of the cross and they see the nakedness, the shame. To them it's just foolishness. It makes no sense. But to those of us who are being saved, the cross is the power and the wisdom of God. Well, you might be thinking about, yes, David, what about the Christian life? Living the victorious life, where we are the head and not the tail. All this talk of weakness, of difficulties, of sorrows, defeat, and the sufferings. Truly, this can't be God's will for his children. You remember in our New Testament's, we don't have to turn there, but I encourage you to go to 2 Corinthians 12 sometime and read there our, our Apostle Paul, where he tells us he had a thorn in the flesh. Now everybody wants to know, what was the thorn in the flesh? Well, we don't know. I'm glad we don't know, because then we could go, there it is, he suffered in his body. You ever had a sticker in your sock? Man, I stop and I yank that thing out. He had a thorn in his flesh, and he prayed not once, not twice, but three times that it would be removed. And the Lord Jesus said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. See, the theologian of glory says power is perfected in power. So Paul could say, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may be dwelling in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, 
You know it. Then I am strong. It was, again, Job's counselors who could not see God's wisdom and power in the suffering of the righteous. Eliphaz could say to Job in chapter 4, Whoever perished being innocent? Who indeed? Or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. And thus their logic. Dear people of God, it is still the theology of glory that refuses to see that God is found in the suffering and the brokenness of his beloved son on the cross and likewise in the present suffering of his people. Every one of you here this morning, I'm sure, either has had, do have, and I can promise you, will have a thorn in the flesh. You know, God gave us marriage to heal our loneliness. It's not good for man to be alone. Sometimes marriage becomes the the greatest place of loneliness. You have children, you catechize them, you teach them. There's the old saying, when children are small, they step on your toes. And when they grow, they step on your heart. Every one of you is going to get the call about a loved one. You're going to get a call by yourself. It's terminal. Are we to consider that the absence of God? It is the theology of glory that refuses to see that God is found in the suffering and the brokenness of his beloved son on the cross and likewise in the present suffering of his people. I know you're thinking, boy, this is a really encouraging sermon. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory on Sunday. And Monday and Tuesday, day without end. The apostles, they longed for and lived for the fellowship of Christ's sufferings being conformed to his death. God's wisdom, grace, and love are not questioned by suffering. For the believer. The theology of the cross promises that when God seems most absent, he is with us in sanctifying loving kindness. Was, was, did, did Christ suffer on the cross? He suffered in a way that none could ever suffer. And yet we both see at the same time, there is the greatness, the, the wisdom, and the love of God. Let me prove this to you. First, look again there. Look, look, we're almost done, I promise. Verse 22. Why are they suffering? Why? Why? The, the, the best answer we get right here. Verse 22. But for your sake, we're killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. 
Now, with that still reverberating in your soul, go to your New Testament, Romans chapter 8. This closes out the the high doctrinal part of Romans where Paul brings it all together, that we have the Spirit of the Son, of the Father, the Blessed Trinity. And so in verse 18 of Romans chapter 8, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's what I'm talking about. There it is, glory, but notice what it says, that is to be revealed. Let me back up, 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ... I don't know if the ESV has it, but the next, the next little article there is really important. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Now skipping all the way down to verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Now, he's going to give a list of things that was going on right there in the early church and that is going on right now throughout the world with all of God's people. Will tribulation? That's a question, but it's, it's a rhetorical question. The expected answer is what? No. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation? No. Or distress? No. Or persecution? No. Or famine? No. Or nakedness, no. Peril, no. Sword, no. Now look what he appeals to. Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. He goes back and he, he, he takes his inspired pen, he dips it in the ink well of the Old Testament, and he says, what was true there where the God's people were dismayed, understand that it was for the sake of God, the theology of the cross, where we join in and share in the very sufferings of Christ. Verse 37. Again, it's those little words sometimes you've got to pay really close attention to. Verse, verse 37. But in... Not from, but in all these things. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Remember the end of Psalm 44? For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The words of an Anglican theologian says, it's at the cross that faith began. And to hear the cross, that faith will continually return. To be nourished by the crucified Christ. Through sharing in Christ, the believer shares in his suffering and death and will one day, but not yet, 
share in his glorious resurrection. So the theology of the cross speaks to every one of you here today. That in your sorrows, your suffering, and I know that right now the church, this church is going through some puzzling times. It would be easy to say, God has left the building, when in fact I'm reassuring you that in the times of dismay and suffering, it's not the evidence of God's absence, but the presence of his wisdom and his love. Now how do we know that? Well, Christ was crucified. Why did we meet today? Why will we meet next Sunday? Because Christ didn't stay dead. So we too withhold our judgment until the day that our Lord Jesus Christ returns. And when we see him, we'll be like him in all of his glory and all of his majesty. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Holy Father in heaven, forgive us for often with ourselves and with others being theologians of glory. We know that there is a glory that awaits us when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. Until that time, keep us near the cross. Let its shadows always be over us. I do pray for this church that whatever may come, that they too will always boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our gracious God in heaven, we know that you hear us because you love us. And we know that you love us because you gave us Jesus. And though he was dead, he was raised, never to return to the dust again. And so we ask that you would keep us in the theology, how you have revealed yourself in the sorrow and the suffering of Christ and even ourselves. And we ask this all in the blessed name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.